Welcome back to Recorded Conversations, the podcast that's dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic, connected dialogue. I'm Danielle Kingstrom. I thought now would be a good time to switch gears and move away from some of the heavy, suffocating, serious discussions that have been clogging the airwaves and move on to a little bit of love for your listening pleasure. I recorded this conversation a while back and I'm sure many of you are familiar with my next guest. It's Thomas J. Ord. He is a theologian, philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary studies. He is a best-selling and award-winning author, having written and edited over more than 25 books. He directs a doctoral program at the Northwind Theological Seminary and the Center for Open and Relational Theology. He is a 12-time faculty award-winning professor. He teaches at institutions around the globe. Ord is known for his contributions to research on love, open and relational theology, science and religion, and the implications of freedom and relationships for transformation. The topic of the conversation is centered on the question that I initially asked Mr. Ord when I invited him to be a guest on the show, and that was, do you have an Eros theology? To which he responded, yes, I do. He shares the synopsis of his book, God Can't, which you should find on Amazon and buy immediately like I did. Um, We talk about what it looks like to rethink God's power and consider God's love as uncontrollable, and he breaks down what relational theology looks like. We get a little nostalgic, and we go back in time, dig back to when he originally decided that love had to be the center of theology and that he wanted a definitive way to formulate love, what it is. And he came up with this definition that I think is just phenomenal and should be highly considered. To love is to act intentionally in relational response to God and others, to promote overall well-being. And then he says, love is constantly asking the question, what promotes the common good? And then we switch topics, and Thomas asks if it's okay that we talk about some sex on the show. To which, of course, if you know me, you know by now, sex is always on the table in conversation. So we go through masturbation, we go through what promotes well-being, we talk a little bit about polyamory, we discuss the umbrella idea, eros, eroticism, subcategory, he picks at Augustine a little bit. So if you are ready for a conversation with Mr. Thomas J. Ord, unlike one you've ever heard before, stick around, you're going to love the next 45 minutes of this show. have not read any of your books yet. Okay. <laughs> no um, problem. But, but about two years ago, I printed off your Agape Theology blog. Oh, you did? Oh. Yeah, it was when I was doing some initial research on kenosis. Oh, and, good, good. Yeah, it led me to Agape, and it was your article that I printed off because I appreciated how you disagreed with Anders Nygren. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I had recently read the work of Cynthia Bourgeau and she also oh. disagrees with his work yeah. and how he distinguished Agape from Eros. So yeah, it was right up my alley. And then I haven't been working on my manuscript for a while. And so this week I was like, I should do that. And I went and pulled back some of my research and it was right there. And I went, you know, I can't help but wonder if he has an Eros theology. Ah, good. So, yeah. But I am very aware of you and your work, and um, oh. your your most recent book was God Can't, 
I saw, I listened to many of your podcast interviews. Oh, well, thank um, you. Yeah. And uh, I hear that that book is just getting phenomenal praise. It is. And selling well, it's very, very good. And I'm it was a very it. controversial topic. How do you say God can't? Yeah. God can yeah. do anything. Exactly. And so because <laughs> I have not read your book, would you mind just telling me a little bit about the, the basic premise of it? Yeah. Well, I've been working at these ideas for a while. They're what philosophers call the problem of evil. And that is, you know, why if God is so loving and so powerful, why are there genuine evils in the world? And some people have rejected the idea that there are genuine evils. Uh, most people don't want to go down that road. Other people want to say, you know, God's not really loving, or at least not loving in the way we can understand it. Uh, but a lot of folks don't like that. I'm willing to rethink God's power. And the way I do it is to say that God's love is inherently uncontrolling, which is, uh, sounds good to a lot of folks initially. And then I start laying out what that means. And it gets interesting. Fortunately, I've had a very positive response from it, especially, well, especially from people who are survivors, people who've been harmed, people who are victims. Uh, because this is a way of thinking about a loving God who didn't cause the crap that they've been through, who didn't even sort of allow it as if God could have stopped it. And so it gives them, uh, I think, a measure of hope. Sorry about that. I got a tickle all of a sudden. I must have been <laughs> excited. Um, because what it sounds like, <clears throat> pardon me. It sounds like you believe in a universal God. Yeah, I do believe in a God who's present to everyone and everything, a God who loves everyone and everything. In fact, I sometimes put it like this, because God loves everyone and everything, God can't control anyone or anything. And, you know, there's a lot of technical ways to talk about this in terms of what I call essential kenosis and love coming logically first in God's nature. Uh, but it sort of gets laid out in the way of understanding what God's love is like for everyone. Mm, I like that. Yeah. You, you talk about, um, you use that word love logic. And I think one of your most recent blogs, you were talking about, uh, we can lament and explain. Mm -hmm, yes. And this you said that, and it was, Oh, pardon me for just one second. No, no problem. <laughs> like what the heck I was doing. I was doing meditation before this. What is going on? I'll drink my own water. Just so I, you're making me want to cough. <laughs> I think I got it. Okay. I'll try that again. So yeah, I read your recent one. It was the, um, we can lament and explain. And there was just a particular part in there where you talked about God's uncontrolling love. And that's kind of the, that kind of the trajectory I'm on right now, like love doesn't force, love doesn't control. And so God's love is uncontrolling, which means in a way that's not disempowering, basically God cannot choose not to love. Right. And that is kind of the essence that we're supposed to, I guess, try to embody like this idea that we can't do anything but love other people. But I mean, it's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a difference between us and God, at least the way I see it. Yeah. I think God's eternal nature is love for others. And that nature is immutable to use the classic language where you and I, we don't automatically choose love. We have the choice to sin. So there's a big difference. Um, yeah. Yeah. I can change my mind and say, I don't love you anymore. I'm done with that. But exactly. I, I like this. I like this idea that, that nope, God can't do that. And so you you have a relational theology, which means God is a relational God. So could you break that down a little bit? What is relational theology? Yeah. So it surprises a lot of people to discover that some of the most important theologians in Christian history and Muslim history as well, believe that God is totally unaffected by anything that happens in the world. God is totally unrelated in the sense of being influenced by what happens, which led a lot of major Christian theologians to try to do gymnastics to get around this problem. Because, you know, for instance, uh, one of the great theologians named Anselm says, you know, I know we're supposed to believe that you, God, are compassionate, 
but I know you don't have any feelings. You're not affected by anybody. So you can't be compassionate in any way that we think is compassion. So therefore, you must be compassionate from our perspective, but not really in your own self. Um, and these kinds of strange things. I just say, no, God is really compassionate. God is really relational. That seems like the way the Bible, the way the Bible describes God, God who's affected by what happens in the world. I think God's nature is, is eternally immutable, unchanging. So we don't have to worry about, you know, God being overcome by emotion and doing something sinful. But uh, we can believe that God really is emotional and feels what we feel. Mm. It's hard for us to accept that God is emotional, though, because then you go back to that immutable word and you think, well, if a person can be emotional, we know what that means for us. But we're always applying that kind of same boundary that if we're emotional and reactive, therefore we can change our mind. And that's just some of these teachings that we've been influenced by. That would mean, ergo, that God would feel the way, but we're not willing to distance ourselves in that level or maybe just apply that distinction. Right now, there's a lot of theology for me that's, that's hard to wrap around that's coming about this idea, I am God. And mm. in some regard, I like the messaging behind it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think, okay, well, God can't intervene. God can't mm. change things. God can't step down right now and say, coronavirus gone. Yeah. And for me, that's a little dangerous to say that mm. I am God, because that would mean I, would, I could assume those same powers. And so I wonder if you see that kind of theology going around and, and what do you think about it? And what and is it possible that sometimes it's just misinterpreted as well? Do you see any basis for saying I am God or do you believe the distinction is necessary? I strongly think the distinction is necessary. So I, I would never say I'm God or any part of creation is God. You know, in the Christian tradition amongst sort of professional theologians, there's this ongoing conversation about how God might be is transcendent, which they mean by that God is different from us, or how God is imminent, by which they mean God is similar or the, the same as us. And I think if you go way too far on the imminent side, you have God being exactly like this. And I don't think that's very helpful. It doesn't make me want to worship God because I know I'm not exactly the greatest guy in the world. So we don't want a God who's too much like us. On the other hand, most professional theologians have veered, I think, too far on the transcendent side. They've said God is totally different from us, totally dissimilar. Not even any language or thought or word could describe God in any measure whatsoever. That's sometimes called apophatic or absolute apophatic theology. I think most people are searching for a middle way that says, you know, God is different from us. We're not divine in the sense of being God's. But God is also similar to us. Otherwise, we couldn't have any language like the language of love to talk about what it means for God to be in a a loving relationship. Yeah, I like that. I agree. So popping back over to the distinctions of agape, eros, and philia, do Mm. you believe that the agape love is the only type of love that God experiences and expresses? Or do you think God also participates with a philia love or an eros love? I think God expresses all three kinds of love. And, you know, as you ask that question, my mind goes back about, uh, boy, more than 20 years ago, I was working on, I was really convinced that somehow love had to be the center of theology. And then I'm reading through scripture, I'm reading through important theologians and philosophers, and I'm, I'm, seeing all these different understandings of love, all these definitions, all these meanings, and not just sort of by the theologians disagreeing with one another, in the Bible itself. And so, you know, before we started talking, you mentioned Anders Nygren. Uh, He was a major theologian in the early part of the 20th century that people, not only theologians engaged in, but philosophers, literary critics. I mean, he was one of those kind of characters. And he makes these claims about agape being the only love that God expresses. And that made no sense to me. It made no sense biblically, theologically, philosophically. And, and on this particular question, the majority of the people agreed with me, or maybe I agreed with them. But anyway, um, this idea that some of us were taught in Sunday school 
that God loves with agape and we don't, or if we do, it's just this special kind of love that's so right and righteous, whereas eros and phileo, well, that's just mundane, secular. I totally reject that kind of view. Mm, yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. I've been I've been pressed uh, a few times by people who support and endorse that kind of theology, and it makes what I'm trying to propose really difficult. Yeah. And so it's just nice to hear another voice out there say, <laughs> I might've messed that one up a little bit. I mean, I think yeah. I understand a lot of, a lot of um, early uh, 20th century theologians wanted to get behind this idea of love, but then make sure that we knew that God's love was superior because we have to maintain that idea that God is superior. And so, yeah, I think it yeah. was, you know, Problematic. I suspect that's part of it. I mean, I also think that, you know, this word love is used in so many different ways in, in our language. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, I can love the Seattle Mariners pizza. I can love my wife. I can love God. I can love, a, you know, a nice jog in the cool mm -hmm. summer. There's all kinds of ways we use it. Yeah. And so sort of the positive spin is that Christians didn't want to say God is love. And by that mean, you know, the same as loving pizza. So, you know, they wanted to pick a word that could be unique. But in doing so, I think they ended up making all kinds of claims about God's love being totally different that just aren't supported biblically, aren't supported experientially, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. So one thing, well, I re recall asking you if you had anything currently written that I could dig through regarding yeah. Eros, and you had led me to one article. Um, what is love? Baby, don't confuse me no more. <laughs> yes. Um, I love that. Um, and so that kind of did lead me towards understanding a little bit about your tiptoe into what you think about Eros. I'm wondering if we could break it apart a Great. little yeah. bit. Um, one thing that stood out to me that I think I was a little conflicted about mm. um, was just you said love promotes well-being mm -hmm. and in, in other phrases, it's, you know, considered a blessedness or a flourishing, abundant life, wholeness, genuine happiness, shalom, good life. And I, I paused and I said, okay, does where, where is your um, relation of love to the desire for what is good and beautiful and pleasurable? Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, and again, my mind goes 20 years ago. So let me kind of walk through my We're mental processes. Here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my mental processes to come to where I am today. Well, actually, I mean, I, I kind of came to these conclusions by the year 2000. But um, so I wanted to have a definition of love. And that took me a long time to come to a definition I thought was helpful. And so I ended up defining love like this. To love is to act intentionally in relational response to God and others to promote overall well-being. So that became the kind of umbrella. And then under that, I had particular forms of love. We're today talking about eros, agape, and philea, but we could talk about compassionate love, affectionate love, romantic love, all kinds of things. So given this umbrella then how do we think about agape, eros, and philea? If they're truly loves, they're always going to be intentional responses that promote overall well-being. That's sort of, if it's a love, it has to fit under that. So okay. what makes eros unique, as I define it, is that love finds value and appreciates the value, beauty, loveliness, excellence, whatever, of the other in relationship and then often tries to seek to enhance it or just enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And when we enhance it or even enjoy it ourselves, we're experiencing well-being. And um, I think that's a really important aspect of love. It's not the only love, but an important one. Okay. That clears it up for me then. That was, and maybe I just didn't see that directly that, that you were making your distinctions in yeah. that sense. And I I think I'm doing that too with the work that I'm doing with eroticism. So it makes sense. And yeah, that cleared something up for me because then I went, well, what are you saying? Because later on, 
you said to promote overall well-being is to act with the greater good in mind, not just an individual pleasure. And so for me, I was like, well, what do you mean about my pleasures in regard to the greater good? But yeah. now that you've explained that, you're talking about the love, love that you're defining as separate from Eros, right? Well, I have this overarching category, and then I think love is one particular form of Eros. Okay. Now, sometimes it is promoting overall well-being to find pleasure in ourselves. Um, so I've got no problem with that. I've got no long problem with people seeking their own pleasure insofar as it doesn't undermine the pleasure of others and it promotes their well-being in the whole. Okay. Uh, maybe another way I could say it is this. Um, when I was formulating my, my definition, a lot of people wanted to say love is thinking about the well-being of others. And I said, no, I think that's important, but what about self-love? Mm. What about my own well-being? And my own well-being may in include enjoying certain pleasures. I mean, there's, I don't, again, I don't have anything wrong. I have no problems with pleasures. It's just when pleasures become, uh, undermine the well-being of the whole that we have a problem. Okay. So as part of my definition, I wanted to have an important role for self-love. I like that. So it has to be almost integrated. It's yes. other love and self-love. And that is important. I, I agree on that because sure, you can go get your rocks off and get whatever kind of pleasure you can and call it love. But if the other person isn't reciprocating and receiving it in the same way, it, it kind of, it, it annihilates any kind of pleasure toward the other then. And that's for me, the most important part, your pleasure can't be pleasurable without their pleasure for me anyway. Yeah, yeah. You have to think about the relationship, the whole. That's why it's so The so give and the take. Yes. Uh, the, the return and the accept. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. yeah. I like that a lot. Well, good, good. I mean, I think there's a room, there's room for self-sacrifice in love. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, so in some of the Eros literature, you see people who are rebelling against love as always self-sacrificial. Mm -hmm. And I also rebel against love if it has to always be self-sacrificial. But then sometimes they seem to swing all the way to the other side and seem to say, well, love is love if it enhances my well-being. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes that's, that's the truth. But there's some times in which we really do have to be self-sacrificial for the good of the whole. I mean, as a parent, you know that in relationship to your kids. Um, and so there's... Love is constantly asking the question, at least as I understand love, constantly asking the question, what promotes the common good? And my good is part of the common good. I don't want to ignore that. But insofar as I focus on myself too much, then that becomes problematic. Mm, I like that. So for me, uh, originally, when I was reading that, and it, it struck me in that way, I was like, is he, he's not talking about like, whatever I do in the bedroom has to be considered in whole of the whole society. Um, Cause that was the initial reaction. But then I thought, well, when we talk about common good, I talk about it within proximity. My common good is whatever is within proximity to me. So if my actions right now are directly impacting someone like that I live with in, in relationship with me, that's when you have to start considering it. And that's just all I'm trying to explain here is originally yeah. I took it as this. This seems like we could lead down a path of some very narrow distinctions of like what is and cannot be pleasurable for a person. But yeah. I often see that kind of messaging put out there. Like, yeah. because the Bible says this, or because this yeah, preacher says yeah. this, you better not try and go down that road. And for me, it shuns the idea of curiosity, discovery and exploration within relationship. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I like that. Is it okay if we talk some about sex on this yeah. show? I always <laughs> want to talk about sex on this show. Yes. Okay. Let me go uh, some wild directions. Okay. Let me talk about masturbation, sex between, a, let's say, a married couple, and the effect it might have on children. Okay. So, let's say a married couple... We don't have to say married, but we'll just for the sake of the audience, we'll say a married couple is doing something sexually that brings both of them pleasure. Now, 
is that promoting overall well-being? Probably in most situations, yes. But let's say this couple has this weird thing where they like to scream and yell when they have sex and they've got kids in the house. Hmm. Now, in that situation, you might say, okay, now maybe for the sake of the kids, maybe their pleasure in screaming is going to have to be, you know, a particular, they're going to have to put in some sound boards or yeah. go somewhere else or <laughs> something like that. So in that case, screaming because it's sexually pleasurable might not be the most loving thing if it has some sort of negative mm. effects on the kids. Or let me go to masturbation. Masturbation, a pleasurable thing. Is it good or bad? It can be very positive unless it somehow undermines the relationship with the other. If yeah. let's say a guy is into masturbation and doesn't want to have sex with his wife now because he's, you know, not excited. He's self-sufficient well, too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, we could put it on either spouse, but here I'll yeah. just, I'll say the guy. So then while masturbation in and of itself isn't negative and it can be even a, a form of self genuine love it's not loving if it's depriving the relationship between the two. You know, getting specific and graphic for a little bit just to talk about how pleasure can be appropriate in one situation and not in another because we have to ask the question about relationships and the broader uh, society or broader family in this case. Yep, I totally agree with you on that. Um, I'm a promoter of masturbating. Okay, but good. <laughs> for me, I think it's still missing something. I think if you have yeah. a partner, I don't know why you're doing it unless maybe yeah. you just want to help yourself go to sleep. I understand there's research that backs that that's good too. Your wife yeah. or your husband says, no, go take care of yourself. Um, yeah. But for me, I think it's missing a piece only because you can't fully surrender to yourself while you're pleasuring yourself. Yeah. And yeah. so when you are looking for a transcendent experience, for me, a full surrender includes the ability to surrender to yourself as well. And you can't surrender to yourself if you are dependent upon yourself to stimulate yourself to bring you to the pleasure. So yeah. that's just my caveat on masturbation. But it can be fun with partners together. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I th also think it's exclusionary. And we do have to draw that line. Um, and sometimes spouses are just more comfortable with being that sexually relational to themselves but yep. they don't realize that it does create a harm and it does create a divide within the home. A lot of husbands think I can't ask my wife for sex. She had a bad day. So da, 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 da. But then now you're excluding communication, which is yep. very important for connection. And so, yeah, I agree. There are, there are very careful lines we need to be aware of when it comes to what is pleasurable for the self and only the self versus the wholeness of the relationship. Very good. Yeah, Thanks, awesome. Sir. Yeah, and I think I like the way you describe all that. And for me, it's the question of well-being that's the the fundamental question. Um, and pleasure can be a means or self-pleasure or pleasure amongst a partner in a romantic relationship, sexual relationship, can be activity that promotes well-being. Uh, but in instances in which it doesn't promote, you know, you, we can think of um, sexual experiences in which it's pleasurable for one and harmful for another, then that's not promoting overall well-being. And so for me, I keep coming back to the question, does this promote overall well-being? Yeah, that's a good question to ask before we make those decisions. And yeah, and it's hard. I'm just going to put this out there too. I think it's more difficult to promote well-being when you're outside of the confines of some kind of a commitment. You right. don't have to be married um, you don't have to exchange some kind of contract, but to, I like monogamy in that regard. So Yeah, there's a certain amount of safety. There's a certain amount yes. of, uh, you can be more vulnerable with the person that you yes. trust to be with you. Yes. And that's why, you know, traditional marriage has been helpful in most situations. I'm with you. I don't necessarily think that has to be true for every case, but I think in most cases, it's the wise, wise way to go. I've actually kind of changed my mind a little bit on how mm. I view marriage, actually. Um, I was coming to a point where just doing research, I was like, wow, marriage was all about the patriarchy and promoting property. Yeah. And, you know, you can develop that kind of sour taste for looking down on marriage. But then I just recently read a book that made me look at marriage as a way that, yes, it protected property and lineage and 
and heirs' rights to, to farmland and everything. And yes, there are so many instances in history documented where women were, you know, basically forced to marry, blah, 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 blah. But if you're willing to also look for the silver lining, marriage provided a safe environment for both, where you didn't have competition, it did decrease the instances of rape, and what it did is it made sex sacred. Yes. And that, for me, kind of has shifted just my views on the overall topic to see that marriage wasn't necessarily super sexist, but it created a sacred space for us to be vulnerable with people. And especially when you look at that from a religious lens, that was important because if you are talking about a relational God, you need to first learn how to relate to people in such a vulnerable, surrendering sense. And you can't do that outside of some kind of a safety like that. Yeah, that's really well put. I, I might just add one additional piece and that's the questions of uh, comparison. Um, I have a friend who is uh, in a polyamory relationship and um, you know, he asked me what my opinion on this. And I said, you know, I, I, I'm not in that relationship. I could imagine maybe how it could be helpful, but it would take some really mature people mm. who are not worried about how they might be compared with someone else. <laughs> and I don't think very many people in life have that kind of self-esteem <laughs> to be able to handle that. So one of the advantages of having a committed relationship, in this case marriage, but you know, again, I'm not saying it has to be marriage. I just that's where I find it most of the, uh, the help here. But having that commitment means, and if it's a monogamous one, means that uh, I don't have to worry about whether or not my partner is comparing me to the other partners he or she might have in the situation. Mm, I like that. And comparison is of the ego. So any instances in which we can eradicate that part of our daily interactions, that's good. I like that you brought up polyamory. That has been a topic that my husband and I have been talking about and just curious about. And we've been like, I'm following people's stories. Like, how does this work for you? Yeah. And so as kind of a step towards my own curiosity and also a step towards, I don't know, catharsis, but also research. So I did this Tinder thing. Me and my husband talked about it. And I jumped on and I like was very specific. I am a researcher. I'm a writer. I'm a podcaster. I am curious about ethical non-monogamy. And there are so many people out there that do this. Like there are polyamorous uh, people out there on like Tinder. And I've talked to a few of them who like one is a professor and one is a sociologist and they study this as they participate in it. And it is such a commitment to each other to then go, we love each other this much. We believe that this kind of love needs to be shared outward. And so I was kind of like, okay, could we do this? You know, you ask the question, could we do this? We love each other so much. We have been through, you know, infidelity. We have been through my criminal record. We have been through debt and loss and, and just everything. And so it was like, if you can come up through all of this, feeling stronger and more empowered than ever and more confident and trusting in your relationship, could you take that next level? The surprising statistics show polyamorous relationships, even if only temporary, produce better results for su successful, longer-lasting relationships, which mm -hmm. is what got me very curious about it. Now, I did this whole two-week process on Tinder, and I told my husband, and you know, we talked every day about everything that was going on, and I was like, I can't wrap my hand, head around this right now, but I love understanding someone else's perspective about how they are willing to do that. I would be curious if your friend who is in a polyamorous relationship would be willing to talk to me. So if on a side note, you could, yeah, I would just I'll love to contact. Yeah. explore that. Um, because I won't say, I think it's uh, an evolution everybody should get to, but I do think it's kind of especially unique that there are people out there that can step outside the boundaries of monogamy and love like that and really put to the test of loving all of your neighbors like you would love yourself. Uh, yeah. So. Well, I don't at all claim to be an expert on this subject. I'm learning myself as uh, also. Um, for me, because love is at the very center of the way I understand God, my theology, the world, and love talks about promoting overall well-being, 
I try to run questions like whether or not polyamory is uh, appropriate through that lens of love, mm. through that filter and ask the questions. And um, one of the concerns I do have, and I don't know how this fits into the research you've done, so you might know a lot more than I do about this, but um, I've read so much research about how strong marital relationships are important for the development of children and how they feel secure. And I wonder how children and polyamory relationships, uh, how they function. Again, I'm just, my, my hunch is not positive, but I don't know the research yet. So maybe I'm totally wrong about that. That's a good question. And um, I have seen some, you know, where the the relationship starts that way. And so whatever children are brought, are, are, are birthed in that relationship, that's just their natural environment. However, it does affect them a little bit later. It's like this stigmatization and this little traumatic phase that sometimes they go through in realizing what their environment that they have seen as natural is actually not. And so that creates conflicts, obviously. Um, One thing, you know, and I have older children and I've open about, you know, what we're doing. I post about it for crying out loud. So I have to be, but (laughs) you know, my, my daughter and my son joked, they're 20 and 18. They're like, we're not calling anybody else daddy, you know? (laughs) Um, And that's a joke too, because my husband is their stepfather you know, they still have their father in their life, but they're like, no more daddies, two's the limit. And I just thought, (laughs) that's kind of funny. Um, And, you know, my, my daughter was like, yeah, do what you want to do, you know? And I was like, or are you worried about this? And what if, you know, someone listens to the podcast, I've talked about this, someone comes to you at work and says something. And she's like, whatever you guys want to talk about is your business, but nobody's judging you. And I think that's just the important part. But children go through so much trauma as it is just between, you know, my kids saw me arrested on their sixth birthday, my twins did. Mm. So it was like, did we move past that? Yeah. Did it, did it stunt a little bit of their progress at the time? Yeah. And it, it, we have to work through things as they come to us, but more and more research comes out that basic Dr. Shafali Sabari, she's somebody who really focuses on um, making sure you're an awakened parent before you start having kids because we screw up our kids so much, but more and more um, research is, is piling up showing us how traumatic a normal child's life is. And we don't even understand it. And so any steps we can take to alleviate additional trauma that we perpetuate them with as we're forming these little molds is a good idea. And I think a polyamorous relationship is something that needs to be heavily weighed and discussed and many nights slept on before you enter into that. I would imagine that's definitely a good thing to consider though. Always think about your children in this promoting the well-being of others. Yeah. So what is Thomas J. Ord working on? Do you have another book coming out? Uh, you know, I do. I have a follow-up to, I've got several things coming out. Uh, <laughs> as you, as I'm starting to formulate my answer, I'm thinking, you know, which should I talk about? Um, so real quickly, uh, there's an edited book coming out very soon called On Open and Relational Leadership. Um, that's probably going to be out by June. A follow-up book to God Can't called Questions and Answers for God Can't. Uh, that'll come out the end of the summer. But uh, one of the reasons why I was looking forward to talking with you today is that um, I wrote a couple of books that came out in 2010, one called Defining Love and another called The Nature of Love. And in The Nature of Love, I actually talk, I have a chapter on Eros, a chapter on Agape, a chapter on Philea. And um, I've been thinking, Danielle, that I want to write a love book at the public or accessible level that I wrote, God Can't. Mm. Uh, both of those 2010 books are more for scholars. And, um, and I, I want to write a more accessible book that gets at some of these ideas and puts them in language that people can, you know, really understand and, and work with. So that's, um, that's so- in the future. You know, that's really interesting. I love that because one of the questions I have right now is since we don't have an official love doctrine, I mean, really, if you look back throughout history, we don't have anything we agree upon is, do you think we need a love doctrine? 
a love doctrine, like for Christianity, you mean? Maybe, or yeah, I mean, to start there as a starting point, there doesn't really seem to be one in regard to not the love of God, but maybe an erotic love doctrine, a Uh, love doctrine of eroticism. I mean, that's just always my question. Like, why isn't there one and how do we create one and what would it look like? Yeah, well, I got some theories on why there hasn't been one. Um, One of those theories is that most Christian theologians have understood God in such a way that it really wasn't likely to be formulated. So most, I mentioned earlier that most Christian theologians have a non-relational God. And I'll pick on this Augustine, one of the most important theologians in history here. In his book on teaching Christian doctrine, he says more about love in that book than any of his other books. And it is a disaster in my in my view. <laughs> So he says love takes two forms. Love is either enjoyment or love is use. So you love someone because you enjoy something about them as valuable or you use them in some way. Then he says, uh, well, how can we apply this to God? Does God enjoy us or does God use us? He says, well, God can't enjoy us because in his view, God is perfect in all respects has no lack, no need, no desires, so God can't enjoy us. Then he says, but saying God uses us sounds like somehow God needs us also, because that means there's something God would want to have happen. And so he says, you know, God doesn't enjoy us or use us, so I guess this category doesn't even apply to God. And I think, why don't you rethink your view of love and your view of God? (laughs) Um, So... Theologians have been reticent to say that God has any kind of needs, any kind of desires, because they thought of God as perfectly whole and without any passions, any sympathies, any movement whatsoever, this big unmoved blob. And I think that's not the way Scripture speaks about God. It's not the way we, I think most of us want to talk about God. Mm-hmm. And so because the tradition has had this crappy view of God, we haven't been drawn, at least most people, haven't been drawn toward a doctrine of love, let alone a doctrine of erotic love. Yeah, it is hard for, you know, that's the one thing I hinge a lot of my work on is God desires. Like God has, had to have desired. Otherwise, I, I ask the question, then why am I here? You know, God yes. desired relationship, companionship, communion. That that means that there's a reason we're all here. And so desire is like the forefront of everything for me. And it, I don't know, eroticism is the desire for the other, which is God to me. You know, we're constantly yeah. seeking, I think, God in the other person. We're looking for that reflection of God in the other. So our desire that pulls us toward the other is the desire that pulls us towards God and if we're seeking what is good and pleasurable and beautiful, I can only imagine that's because we believe the reflection of God we see in everyone is desirable or is beautiful and pleasurable and good because God is. Yeah. So it's strange to me that we would want to say that God does not desire. Well, then where does my desire come from? Yeah. Well, I think the classic theologians would say, well, that's just the difference between you and God. To use my previous language, they would say God is transcendent and not like us in that way. And I just think there's all kinds of reasons to reject that. You know, just one real side comment here. Um, Have you run across a book by a woman named Elaine Padilla, P-A-D-I-L-L-A? She did a dissertation on uh, erotic divine love. And so it might be something you might like. She's also uh, one of the advisors for the center that I run called the Center for Open Relational Theology. So, oh, really? Right. Well, I will. No, I am not familiar with her name. And so I'm going to Google that, Good. figure out what I can find. Um, thank you for that. Yeah, I'd be interested to. Uh, I have been drawn more and more to. Um, these little hidden erotic theologies. Uh, Audre Lorde has a wonderful work on it as well as Carter Hayward. Yeah. I've just been trying to gather. I think what's really missing is the woman's voice through God. And so that's really important too. You know, one of the things that I find interesting and our conversation so far has illustrated this is that, um, 
I think of eros uh, and then erotic as in sexual or romantic as one small subcategory under eros. Uh, mm. But it's interesting that once, and, and I think that's the way uh, Greek philosophers thought of eros. They thought of eros's attraction toward the lovely, the beautiful, the valuable. And that comes obviously in all kinds of forms. You can have an erotic love for a sunset or whatever. Um, but isn't it interesting how we go, I'll just say we, I'll say I. I, even though I have this overarching understanding of erotic or eros love, that's far bigger than just sex or romance how we tend to go toward those issues. Um, I'm not sure why I'm saying that. Just, I think it's interesting. (laughs) It is. It is. It's true. Um, Yeah. I try to use eroticism as like my umbrella term to explain intimate, vulnerable, multidimensional, like the full senses, flesh, smell, touch, taste. Those relationships fall under the guise of eroticism for me. Um, and then of course there are sexual relationships under that, but I think a relationship between a mother breastfeeding her child is erotic. It falls under eroticism because it is close. It's that proximity intimacy. It's the flesh on the flesh. It's not necessarily sexual, but it's the touch. The touch actually brings me to a question I had about your bodiless God theory. Okay, good. For me is so important. And touch for me, I think is like the signifying ultimate reality of an actual intimate relationship. It needs the touch. Mm, And so when you talk about a bodiless God, I go, so can I touch God when I meet God? And so for me, that just, it creates like this, this fraction where I want to go fix it for Mm. me and Mm -hmm. explain. And maybe, well, you can't because you, you know, you're not, you haven't died and come back to figure it out yet. But for me, that's where I get a little like, but I want to know that I can feel God and touch God. And so you said earlier about how like, well, you know, there's these ideas where we'll (laughs) never be able to explain or even articulate all of God. And so, okay, does that mean I just won't understand what that sensation of intimacy won't feel like? Mm -hmm. So bodiless God, tell me about it. And then what, what, what say you of my desire to want to touch a God and feel God? So my answer might you might find some of it help, some that you like and some you don't like. <laughs> um, I really, I really um, find the view that God is omnipresent to be helpful. Uh, it fits very nicely in most religious traditions that God is everywhere. And so um, then the question becomes, okay, if God is omnipresent, God is present to all of reality, then why can't we see, taste, touch, smell God. Uh, I don't think we can see God walking along our backyard fence um, and couldn't touch God if God was there. So if God is present to all creation, then um, I don't think we can literally touch God Mm. now or in the afterlife. This though brings up a big problem for most theologians because if God's omnipresent, but God can't be perceived by our five senses, then how are we going to experience God in any kind of way? And um, lots of theologians just said, well, it's a mystery, like most theologians. (laughs) And I hate appeals to mystery. So I continue to look for different ways of thinking. Let me get philosophical for you with you just for a little bit. Okay. Okay. Um, I am a fan of a philosopher named Alfred North Whitehead. And he thinks that reality is comprised not of little bits of matter that are chunks of physical things. He thinks reality is comprised of events with both physical and mental dimensions. So that everything that makes up your and my bodies are entities that have both physical and spiritual dimensions. This overcomes all kinds of questions in physics, problems in medicine, etc. It overcomes what philosophers call the mind-body problem. It says that we can have a mind and a body, and because the mind has both physical and mental dimensions, and all the elements of our bodies have these physical and mental dimensions, there's capacity for real causal interaction. All that to say this, I think God has a physical dimension. I think God has a mental dimension. 
So the omnipresent God who's everywhere at all times has both mental and physical dimension. That means that you're right now actually quote touching God, not because you have a finger and God's right there instead of right there, but because God is present to every single part of your body and God has both a physical and a mental dimension. So you don't have to wait to get to heaven to touch God. (laughs) That's very pretty. It actually makes me think of something just random. I remember I read this book called the body and it was talking, it talks about every organ and, and your skin and, and everything. And they talk about skin and it was surprising to me to learn that your skin is dead. Like it's sitting here. It's just dead. And it comes alive when it is touched. And so for me, if I think about God being this mental and physical matter all around me, and, and I think back to my skin being dead until it's touched, it, mm. it requires an other yeah. or myself to touch it in order to feel it. So, Well, you, I mean, I suspect you can, you can quickly see that the God that I have described who's present to all of reality, who has a mental and a physical aspect, is truly relational with all of non-divine reality, you and me, because mm-hmm. God is not only present to us, but we're affecting God. This is a, mm. yeah. So, yeah. I like we're affecting God. I like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing to leave listeners with to process. This has been a riveting conversation. And I'm so thankful that you were willing to come on and tell me about your Eros theology and share all your work, Thomas. This has been- Thanks so much for the invitation. I really enjoyed it, Danielle. Yeah, and you know, keep me posted on your upcoming work on this, maybe love doctrine. Sounds good, I will.